0: Good morning. How's everybody doing today? Uh, we're going to be uh, going back into the Book of Revelation. Uh, good news for everybody; it won't be that hard to follow me today because we're going straight through uh, Revelation chapter two and chapter three, uh, looking at the seven churches. Uh, last week we looked at the uh, seventh church, Laodicea, and uh, there's a lot of lot of information and study to be had on that one. I just wanted to go through the other churches, because I think it's uh, there's a lot there for us, uh, not only as a church, but as individuals. And just having, having the ability to see the expectations that Jesus laid out for these churches. Uh, six out of seven, he uh, gave some commendations for uh Six out of the seven, I'm sorry, five out of the seven, he had rebukes for. There's only two that he didn't have any rebuke for. And only one of them had no commendations, which was the one we studied last week. So expectations are a core part of life. It is easier to live up to expectations when you know what they actually are. Jesus himself has expectations for his bride, the church. Continuing with the book of Revelation, we we'll look at the rest of the seven churches in chapter 2 and chapter 3. As Jesus expresses their good qualities and brings to light where they need to work. I find it important for all Christians to take note of these churches because these qualities still apply today. And if the members of the body evaluate these qualities in their personal life, it will by default change and operate within the larger body of the church. So, today we'll be uh, starting in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, say these things, I know your works, your labor, and your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles, but are not, and have found them to be liars. You have endured and have been patient. For my name's sake, you have labored and have not grown weary. But I have something against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your candlestick from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who comes, I will give permission to eat of the tree, the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The first thing that is mentioned in this passage is the fact that God notices their works. The Ephesus was known for their good works. They were also known for maintaining the truth and not allowing false teachers to teach for long. It says that they tested the teachers that came through. They did it by testing what these teachers had to say through the lens of Scripture, and if they did not line up, they were sent packing. One can only do this if they first read and know the Word for themselves. And... That's one thing that is a humongous blessing to us that we often take for granted is the fact that we can read the Word of God in our native language right now. Because only a couple hundred years ago, uh, prior to 1611, it was illegal to have a Bible that was not written in Latin. The common man could not read it for himself, take it in, let it manifest within his life, and make his own decisions with it. He had to take somebody else at their word that they were telling him the truth. Unfortunately, many times people were taken advantage of because they could not read the word for themselves. and They could not know the truth and let the truth set them free. The habit of testing things, uh, testing teachers and folks to say, I've got a word from the Lord from you through scripture is especially important. Especially for those who claim to have authority from God to speak. This includes pastors. I would encourage everyone to find for themselves what the Bible says and not just take the pastor at his or her word. For two reasons. One, you make personal what the Bible says and two, it is a huge form of accountability for those who teach. The passage also expressed that they hated the work of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans have been teaching that due to salvation, all Christians are now at liberty to live and do as they please. This included all forms of sexual immorality and all forms of alternative lifestyles need to be accepted because the price of sin is no more. This sounds kind of familiar to some modern day teachings and modern day topics, but we'll move on from that. We'll come back to that a little bit later. But with all the great deeds and righteousness that the church of Ephesus had, the Lord still had something for them, that they had lost the love they had for God when they first came to know him. This is a real danger that can be found in any relationship, starting out full of fire and passion, and somehow over time that fire da- uh, dying down, and before you know it, you're just going through the motions. Before you know it, you've become lukewarm with your loved ones. Same thing with marriage. Same thing is applied to your relationship with the Lord. You start out on fire. You can't get enough of them. And after the fire kind of dwindles down, your sensitivity to what is offensive to them kind of dwindles down too, to where you're not quite as worried about what offends them. Because in the back of your mind, you're like, they're not going anywhere. They've been with me for this long. And if it hurts their feelings, they just need to kind of suck it up because they know who I was. They knew who I was before we met, and they know who I am. And that's just not how we're supposed to be. Jesus was calling them men, just as he is now, to burn for him as he does for us, and not to allow the fire to burn out and for it to burn brightly and hot for him. Another thing worth taking note of is the Lord saying if they do not repent, he will remove their candlestick. The candlestick was representative of the Holy Spirit's presence in that church and what allowed it to shine in the city. There's the presence of life in that church and the Lord's anointing on it. If you look all over Europe, it's not hard to find building remains of old churches some of which have been converted into things like museums and apartments, while others are just left in ruins. And we're starting to see the exact same thing all throughout the Bible Belt. There's plenty of places in Niredale County that I've seen old church buildings tucked away in the woods, covered up with vines. Obviously, nobody's been in them for 50, 60-plus years. What happened to those churches? Did they just outgrow it and go into a bigger building? Did they just die off? And it's safe to say that if a church loses its love for Jesus, it's going to die off. And it's not going to be left with much. And within a few generations, it's going to be completely gone in history. Maybe not even remembered. And if you've ever been a part of a church that's going through this cycle of death, you can literally feel the spirit in the church dying. And many times it gets to the final stages. All you can see is the traditions and the signs of life from another era. The great works and the great workings that have happened 40, 50 years ago aren't happening anymore in that particular church. And they started out full of fire, full of revival. Always talking about revival. But yet no lives are being changed in the last couple of decades. And all of a sudden you see all the young folks disappear, the young adults disappear. And they don't come back. And if they don't come back, the children don't come back because the children age out. And all you have is a bunch of older folks with nothing more than their war stories of what has happened in the past. but nothing's happening now. And within one or two generations, that church is completely gone. And sadly, we see it time and time again. So point number one is remember your first love. Let's move on to verses 8 through 11. To the angel of the church of Smyrna write, the first and last, who was dead and came to life, says these things, I know your works and tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of these things which you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, and that you may be tried, and you will have tribulation for ten days. But be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and he who overcomes comes shall not be hurt by the second death. The city of Smyrna was a Roman city that was very, very compliant with the Roman emperor's demands of emperor worship. And because of this, the Christians in the area who refused to worship Emperor Domitian, they were socially and economically ostracized. They were basically pushed off into the ghetto part of town, not allowed to fully engage in a lot of business transactions, not allowed to really shop in the markets the way that they should. They couldn't bring in the normal amount of income for that city to truly thrive financially. So physically they lacked a lot in resources for daily living, but they were still faithful and held true to their faith in the Lord, which is why the Lord called them rich. They were rich to the Lord. Not because of what they had to offer him, but because they had a heart sold out for him. And if you remember back to last week, we looked at a church who was very wealthy and had every monetary resource you could dream of, and the Lord called them wretched and poor. I personally believe that across the world and even within our country, we're going to see this scenario play out more and more commonly. to Where and we, we kind of got a glimpse of it with the COVID mess where there are certain stores in the country that you couldn't even go into unless you had your shot record and proof that you've been vaccinated and proof of compliance with, the, with what was being told. I'm, gonna, I'm saying this now. We're going to see that expanded in a much bigger scenario in the future. But the Lord reminded them to look beyond this physical life to the promise of eternal life with Him. The same thing that He is reminding us of today. To look to Him. To look to His promise. To keep the faith in Him. To reach that level of faith that we find in Daniel chapter 3. That faith that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had. When they were brought before King Nebuchadnezzar for not bowing down to worship the golden image... That they would be placed into the fiery furnace. To that they told them, told him that their God would deliver them from it. And the biggest thing is, is they followed that up with, and if he doesn't do it, that's okay too. Because they will not bow down and worship anything but the Lord our God. Of course, later on in that chapter we see that not only did the Lord protect them inside the fire, He joined them inside the fire and saw them through it. God promises to never leave or forsake us. Even when we don't feel like he's close, he is still always there, going through the fire with us. He promised to love us and to never forsake us, and that means that he goes through the fire with us, that we are protected under his arms. I think back to the short time I got to spend with the missionaries that served down in uh, South America, that served the whole continent down there with the Southern Baptist Convention. <coughs> Excuse me. of well, the older ones said something that has been engraved in my brain for the last 17 years. He said when he first started working in the country that he was assigned to, the population had a very low GDP, but most of the people had joy. And we're, for the most part, really, really happy. And then over the next 20 years after that, as the GDP rose, so did the depression, the suicide rates, and the antidepressants that were being described, or prescribed. Let that sink in for a moment. And 20 years' span, when he first got there, they were full of joy and happy. They didn't have much monetary in their life, but they had enough to survive. And over the next 20 years, prosperity as some might call it happened and they became to be more financially wealthy. What changed in that country? The people went from a mental focus of we have nothing to offer But let us thank the Lord for the blessings that we do have. You went from that to we have made something and we have wealth. We must protect it and maintain it. That stress of protecting and maintaining your wealth. Protecting your investments. Protecting your man-made kingdom. Undue stress that we're not even supposed to carry. As I've said before, there's nothing inherently wrong with having wealth, but when that wealth or the pursuit of it becomes the focus, then destruction is inevitable. Depression is inevitable. Unrighteousness is inevitable because our focus is on the monetary gains And maintaining those gains no matter the cost, no matter who gets in the way. That's when wealth becomes an abomination. That's when it becomes destructive and a major sin. A major heart problem. So point number two is keep the faith, see the promise. Let's move on to verse twelve through seventeen. To the church of Paraguam, write, He who has the sharp two-edged sword says these things. I know your works and where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold firmly to my name and did not deny it. Did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have there those who hold the teachings of Balaam and taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. So you also have those who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the hidden manna to eat, and I'll give him a white stone, and on that stone a new name is written, which no one knows except the one who receives it. Again, we see a church that does well in their works; they got good ministries going on; they keep them faithful even in the face of death. But what the Lord calls them to repent of is also very serious in nature. You had groups of people infiltrating the church with the sole purpose of leading others astray. Again, telling the body that they need to accept all lifestyles, that Jesus is love and we are free to engage in open relationships such as swingers and other forms of lifestyles. That it's okay to mix the paganism with the Christianity. That you're saved and you can enjoy all the splendors of this world without fear of damnation. The even bigger problem is the church leaders have been trying to be unconfrontational about it. So they just let it happen. They didn't want to stir the pot. They didn't want to cause confrontation. So they just did nothing about it. That's a problem as a church leader. A pastor is supposed to be protecting and guiding their flock, but yet they're allowing that mess to happen. So who's Balaam and what did he teach? Balaam was a false prophet in the book of Numbers who sold out his services to an ungodly king and taught the Mennonite women how to seduce the Israelite men into idolatry. Because of this, his name has been used to describe teachings that draw God's people away into worshiping anything aside from him and to compromise their beliefs with that of a secular worldview. God promises that those who keep the faith, he will give the hidden manna to. Basically, in short, the Lord himself will feed and sustain their soul and give strength to them. Same thing that he Manna is the same thing that God brought down from heaven for the Israelites as they're wandering through the desert for 40 years. And obviously it was some good stuff because they didn't die of malnutrition. They didn't die of dehydration. They were thriving eating off the manna. Now they might have complained about it because they ate it every day for 40 years. But it was sustaining It's God promising that he will sustain your soul. That he will sustain your mind. That he will sustain you. That he will give you strength. That he will nourish you. And he also said that he would give them a white stone to wear with a new name on it. This may seem strange to us in the West. But at the time that John was recording this revelation... A white stone was given after a judicial hearing as a symbol or a vote of not guilty. That's big stuff right there. You're somebody looking at the death penalty. And the judge gives you the white stone. The stone that says, I find you not guilty. On top of that, they have a new name. And with that new name, a new authority, a new inheritance, a new identity as a child of God. And a child of God, an heir to God. That identity, the authority that the Lord gave us, That what we bind in heaven is bound in heaven. What we bind on earth is bound on earth. I may have that mixed up. What What we bind down here is also bound up there. What we loose up down here is also loosed up there. Our words have authority. Our words have meaning. They have something backing them. So my third point is to guard and keep the faith. Let's move on to verse 18 through 29. To the angel of the church of Thyreta, the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like fine brass, says these things. I know your works, love, service, faith, and patience, and that your last works are more than the first. But I have a few things against you You permit that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, but she did not repent. Look, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. Unless they repent of their deeds... I will put her children to death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds, and I will give each one of you according to your deeds. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Therita, as many as do not have this teaching, who have not known what some call the depths of Satan, I will put on you no other burden, but hold firmly to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and keeps my words till the end, I will give authority over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. Like the vessels of a potter, they shall be broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, we see this theme of sexual immorality and false teachings that draw people draw the people of God away from him. seems to be an ongoing thing. might be something we need to pay attention to and if you've spent any amount of time around some spiritual folks, you've probably heard the term somebody used of uh, a spirit of jezebel a disruptive The descriptive of a conniving, disruptive, seductive, and lying spirit or person. This is the exact same thing that is being brought up in this passage. The tolerance and acceptance of immorality and teachings that contradict the word of God, and Jesus said that he will put the offspring of the spirit of this spirit to death, which that may mean that he may not intervene in the inevitable consequences of the pain and death that this leads to. But it also might mean that he just, whatever offspring, spiritual offsprings that come about of this uh, adultery with the Jezebel, that he'll kill off all the fruits of that. And this theme is shown to be so prevalent that it is safe to say that every church Every Christian needs to be on high alert for these pitfalls. And if found to be falling for them, to stop, drop, and roll to the feet of Jesus in repentance. Quickly. If it wasn't so important, it wouldn't have been brought up so many times within the same chapter. I guarantee you, every single church that you find in the media with bad news, it's either going to be a sex scandal, false teachings, or stealing money. So, obviously, we got to be on guard for that. It's ongoing, it's been ongoing for centuries. Guard your heart and pay attention. One of the other false teachings that was specifically brought up here in this passage is the Gnostic teaching that in order to really be saved or to really appreciate salvation, one must travel to the depths of Satan or his domain and become acquainted with all forms of sin, defeat the devil, and then rise into the place of salvation, which grossly deviates from scriptures. That we are saved by grace. Jesus also promised those that hold the faith the morning star. Now there are many thoughts and ideas on this verse and the meaning of what the morning star is. And there's a lot of different ways that people can interpret and go with that. But I personally feel it is indicative of hope. And I think of this because of Psalms chapter 30, verse 5, where David's saying, Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. The reason why I say this is the majority of the year, just before dawn, there's a bright star in the east. It's actually the planet Venus, but many of the sailors and travelers over the centuries have called it the morning star because upon viewing it, you know that soon the sun will be up and night will be gone. Traveling at night was dangerous due to low visibility, especially out there in the waters, and the risk of robbery along the highways. I've also heard it before that Jesus was saying that he, the Son, will bring forth light just as the sun's rays bring forth light and healing. Jesus himself is bringing healing and life. Either way, we look at it, I fully believe it is a promise of hope. Whether we fully understand what the morning star is that he's talking about is obviously Jesus saying, I bring you hope. I give you hope. So no matter which way you look at it, just know hope is found in Jesus. And that's a gift that he gives Right, let's move into Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 1 through 6. To the angel of the church of Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says these things. I know your works, that you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, but are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfected before God. Remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names even in Sardis who have not sold their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who ever comes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The church of Sardis was well known for the reputation of being alive and thriving, but somewhere along the way they must have deviated from where they were. They may have seen and done some great and awesome things spiritually, being on fire for the Lord in the beginning with some very successful ministries, but somehow allowed that fire to die down. And it looks as though they still had some within the church that were still alive and on fire, but the rest of the church was dead and unable to light. And like dead tissue that prevents living tissue from thriving until it's been cut out of the body, the body's not allowed to heal. What's dead has to be removed. And if it can't be removed, it has to be brought back to life. And the only one with the power to bring death back to life is Jesus Christ himself. So let's move on to verse uh, 7 through 13. To the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, He who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens, says these things I know your works. Look, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Listen, I will make them the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and not. But lie, listen. I will make them come and worship before your feet to know that I have loved you, because you have kept my word of patience, and also ke- and also will keep you from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon the entire world to test those who dwell on earth. Look, I am coming quickly. Hold firmly what you have, so that no one can take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The church of Philadelphia and Smyrna are the only two churches without a rebuke from Jesus. And if you notice, they're both called either impoverished or physically weak. Both are churches that the larger, more well-off churches listed here might have looked down upon. These bigger churches that were more financially set off and, and appear to be thriving appear to be doing good. All the seats are filled. But the souls are dead. Looking down at these two little churches here. They don't have much monetary wealth. They don't have much strength. But the Lord Jesus has called them rich. Jesus has declared to lift both of them up in his kingdom one with a crown of life, and the other as a pillar in God's kingdom. Out of all the churches, let us choose to be one that Jesus himself describes as one that has kept his word and not denied his name. Let us choose to be a church that Jesus himself describes as holy, one that he describes as on fire for him. that he describes as a people that are after his own heart. Even though we went over the last church last week, I still want to include it today, because this is the church with the most rebuke. It is the only church out of the seven that had no commendations. It was the wealthiest of the seven, and most likely the largest congregation. Revelation 3:14 through 22. To the angel of the of Laodiceans, write the Amen, the faithful, and the true witness. The beginning of creation of God says these things. I know your works; that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, "I am rich." And I have stored up goods, and have need of nothing. Yet you do not realize that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be dressed, that the shame of your nakedness may not appear. And anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Listen, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I was doing some more research on this church in Laodicea this past week, and uh, something that I really noticed that stood out to me that I wasn't aware of beforehand was uh, where they were at uh, geographically. They had a lot of trade going on. But their biggest trade industry that they had going on was that of of fine, fine linens. Tapestries and eye salve for eyes, like makeup and such. And for Jesus to call them out like that and tell them, You're naked, you're poor, and you're wretched, buy from me some clothes, buy from me some eye salve so that you can see. The same things that they were big for trading and selling. He's telling them that they lack and need to buy from him. How much more of a wake-up call can he send to them? How much more of a kick in the gut is that? You're known for your fashion industry, and the God of the universe is saying you're naked. You're known for your wealth, and he's saying you're poor. You're known for your makeup and eye self, but he's saying you're blind and you can't see a thing. How powerful is that? They said that they're rich and they've stored up goods and they have need of nothing. It's like saying nowadays, I've got a good job. I got a good 401k and some savings. I got a bunch of stuff saved up in the pantry here in case stuff hits the fan. I got thousands of rounds of ammunition. I'm prepared for doomsday. I don't need anything. Oh, but you do. Jesus says that you do. Because out of all those things, even though by themselves they're good, without Jesus, they're nothing. Without Jesus, you'll just die a rich man. These letters to the churches are all very applicable to the churches of today. It's not hard to find the good, bad, and just the downright ugly that is mentioned in these passages within the modern day churches of today. And I feel like this message is greatly correlated to the soon return of Jesus and his desire to see his bride made perfect. All week I've heard mentions of different revivals going on around the country around areas and God calling his people to return to him along with the message of don't be afraid of the storms on the horizon that if we remain in him we will not only see peace in the storm but be used as peace in the storm. God is calling his people I don't care what popular opinion says or thinks. I don't care what TMZ says. I don't care what the news says. God is calling his people. And if the people won't listen, they're going to get left behind. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for today. I thank you for your message I thank you that we can use these letters to the churches as a form of reflection in our own hearts, our own minds, and where we are. Father, I pray that you would just open our eyes to what offends you, Father. That we can repent of it and grow and move on. That we can continuously grow in you and move with you, Father. Guide our steps. Protect us, Father. Give us boldness. Help us to speak when we need to speak and be quiet when we need to be quiet. And let us always have our ears in tune to you. In your precious and holy name, amen.